Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Wednesday, February 14th, 2024, Valentine's Day. I am your reader, Martha Avery, and here is our first story. On the front page, art exhibit featuring nearly 11,000 paper cranes installed at the Western Iowa Tech. Sioux City. A new art exhibit has been installed at Western Iowa Tech Community College, honoring the nearly 11,000 Iowans who died during the COVID-19 pandemic. The exhibit features colorful, hand-folded origami papers, with each crane representing an Iowan who died from the disease. Some of the cranes include the handwritten names of the Iowans lost to the virus. Clive, Iowa artist Pam Douglas created the project titled Folding Cranes, Enfolding Community. The project is intended to convey that the deaths were not just a statistic. They were loved and their deaths impacted numerous people. The last official number of Iowa COVID deaths was 10,797. In higher education, we witnessed firsthand the major impact of COVID, said Terry Morrell, president of Western Iowa Community College. It was an incredibly challenging time for students and for educators, requiring all of us to pivot to continue classes. It's wonderful that this artwork creates beauty out of a crisis and has become a way for Iowans to remember how far we've come, all while honoring those no longer with us. During the lockdown in 2020, Douglas said that there was news about deaths related to the COVID-19 pandemic, but said that there wasn't a lot of talk about how those deaths impacted the family members and friends. Douglas said that she had worked with origami for years and new origami cranes stand for hope and healing. I wanted to do something for those who were suffering that we weren't seeming to notice, she said, so I started folding cranes. Another artist in California was attempting to fold cranes for every COVID-19 death in the United States. Douglas felt that she could help by contributing Iowa's death to the project, but lost contact with the artist. She then decided to continue to fold cranes for Iowa deaths. It was first displayed at Sacred Heart Church in West Des Moines for its annual All Saints, All Souls Day celebration in 2020. There were a few times when people were there and I was visiting with them and asking them about their experiences and the loss of their loved ones, and they seemed very touched and seemed like they needed to be there. Douglas said. At that time, it was a two four by 10 foot banners with 1,500 cranes. It has since grown to more than 10,700 cranes. The exhibit has traveled throughout the state visiting the Raymond Gardens in Ames, Des Moines Area Community College in Ankeny, Loris College in Dubuque, and a smaller version of the Waukee Public Library. Douglas said the exhibit is about reaching out, embracing community, 
and acknowledging the grief people are feeling. It's not something that's over within just three months or three years, she said, and I just want them to know that there are a lot of people out there sharing their experience. It has come to Sioux City from North Iowa Area Community College in Mason City, where it has been on display since June. Douglas said her goal is to display the art in the 10 counties throughout the state that saw the most COVID-19 deaths. The exhibit will be displayed for at least six months at WITCC. Because of the exhibit's size, it is divided between three entrances. Another front page story Union County Sheriff Dan Lemoges dies in office 34 years. Elk Point, South Dakota. The Union County Sheriff's Office on Tuesday announced that longtime Sheriff Dan Lemoges has died. Lemoges served as Union County Sheriff for more than three decades. He was named interim sheriff of Union County in February 1990 following the retirement of Sheriff Eugene Bud Rasmussen, only a few months after Limoges joined the force in September 1989. He ran as a Republican for the term of his own in November 1990 and won, and he ha was re-elected in every election since then. Sheriff Limoges will be greatly missed, the Sarif's office said in its Facebook page, He's done a good job, Union County Commission Chair Milton Usted said by phone Tuesday. Usted said the commission will hold a special meeting Wednesday to appoint an interim therese who will serve for a limited period. Applications will then be accepted for more permanent replacement. We appoint somebody for that job for maybe 30 days or maybe a little more and then we'll probably advertise, Usted said. Limoges' current term runs through 2026. It was not immediately clear Tuesday if a special election would be held to fill the remainder. South Dakota Attorney General Marty Jackley on Tuesday released a statement mourning the loss of Limoges, who was also a past president of the South Dakota Series. Association. The South Dakota Attorney General Office is saddened to hear of the passing of Union City Sheriff's Dan Limoges. Sheriff Limoges was a law enforcement officer for almost 40 years and Union County Sheriff's for more than 30. He was a strong public servant who was dedicated to his county and his profession. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family and the agency during this time, Jackley said in a statement. Limoges, who was born in Yankton and grew up in Alcester, joined the Alcester Police Department as a part-timer in 1985 when he was in his mid-twenties. He was named Alcester's police chief not long after, when the former police chief killed his wife and himself. His handling of a murder case and armed standoff in late 1986 won him praise in Alcester, 
leading to a recommendation from Alcester City Council that Limoges be named sheriff when Rasmussen retired. Union County, 467 square miles, policed by fewer than a dozen sheriff's deputies, saw a number of high-profile cases during Limoges' tenure. Perhaps none garnered wider attention than the discovery in 2013 of the remains of Pamela Jackson and Cheryl Miller, Vermilion teens who disappeared on May 29, 1971. The 1960s Studebaker they'd been riding in was found in 2013, overturned in Brule Creek. In 2004, the Union County Sheriff's Office investigated an infanticide case referred to colloquially as Baby Moses, in which a baby was thrown away with household garbage in Alcester and taken to a landfill. Months later, Limoges acknowledged public frustration with the lack of progress in the case. I can assure you calls are still being made. We're following up, Limoges said. The baby's mother was later arrested and sentenced to 10 years in prison for second-degree manslaughter. Limoges' department also worked cases that were weird but not tragic. In September 1992, a partial skeleton was found in rural Union County, wrapped in a snowmobile suit. The bones were sent to Kansas City to be analyzed. The skeleton turned out to be that of an unknown animal speculated at the time to be a large dog or a deer. In 2013, Limoges fought to prevent Union County's 911 services from being transferred to Lincoln County, which was pitched as a way to save taxpayer money. For a few more dollars, we would be in control of it, Limoges said at the time. It's a win-win to keep it local. Limoges and the Sheriff's Department took part in flood response and evacuation measures during the catastrophic Missouri River flooding in 2011, which involved multiple local and federal agencies. Information on Limoges survivors was not immediately available. The third front page story is titled, Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day fall on same day, fasting still expected for Catholics. Sioux City. Wednesday marks a rare day where Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day fall on the same day. Ash Wednesday is a day of prayer and fasting for observant Catholics, while Valentine's Day is seen as a day of feasting and celebration. The last time the two days crossed over was in 2018. Before that, 1945. Since it doesn't happen very often, it's a good year to consider it being a little extra penance if you had plans to go out or to make the day special, said Reverend Andrew Galls, Director of Worship at the Diocese of Sioux City. A dispensation or exemption will not be issued from fasting due to the joint holiday, and instead, Dioceses are encouraging people to celebrate at another time. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of the season of Lent for Catholics. It, it begins on Wednesday because Lent is 40 days long 
excluding Sundays, in imitation of the 40 days and nights that Jesus spent praying and fasting in the desert, Gauls said. Catholics between the ages of 18 and 59 are to fast on Ash Wednesday, eating one regular meal and two smaller meals that do not equal a full meal. The only other time fasting occurs is Good Friday. Catholics 14 or over are also expected to abstain from eating meat on Ash Wednesday. Gaul said fasting is one of the three tenets of Lent alongside prayer and almsgiving. Fasting and abstinence from eating meat is so important because it is a small sacrifice of self-denial that we offer to God, Gaul said. Furthermore, Growth in our spiritual lives depends upon denying ourselves certain comforts or pleasures so that the body does not dictate to the spirit, but so that the spirit dictates to the body. Sioux City Bishop R. Walker Nicholas said Catholics are instructed to fast, practice self-discipline, and abstain from luxuries. Gall said couples can still celebrate Valentine's Day this year. There's always the possibility of celebrating Valentine's as a couple on the weekend prior or the weekend after, Gall said. If you want to stick to the day itself, it will still be a day of fasting and abstaining from meat. Couples could take their larger meal of the day together, but stick to pasta or seafood. And now for some national news. The House rebukes Mayorkas. Republicans vote to send impeachment charges to Senate. Washington. The U.S. House voted Tuesday to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, with the Republican majority determined to punish the Biden administration over its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border after failing last week in a politically embarrassing setback. The evening roll call proved tight, with Speaker Mike Johnson's threadbare GOP majority unable to handle many defectors or absences in the face of staunch Democratic opposition to impeaching Mayorkas, the first cabinet secretary facing such charges in nearly 150 years. The House impeached Mayorkas 214 to 213 with the return of Majority Leader Steve Scalise to bolster the GOP's numbers after being away from Washington for cancer care and a northeastern northeastern storm impacting some others, Republicans recouped, despite dissent from their own ranks. President Joe Biden called it a blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that has targeted an honorable public service in order to play petty political games. The charges against Mayorkas next go to the Senate for trial, but neither Democrat nor Republican senators showed interest in the matter, and it may be indefinitely shelved to the committee. The Senate is expected to receive the articles of impeachment from the House after returning to session February 26th. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, called the case against Mayorkas a sham impeachment and a new low for House Republicans. 
The vote came the same day. Authorities said arrests for illegal crossings at the U.S. border with Mexico fell by half in January from record highs in December to the third lowest month of Biden's presidency. Border patrol arrests totaling 124,220 in January, down 50% from the 249,735 in December, the highest monthly tally on record. Arrests of Venezuelans plunged 91% from 4,422 from, uh, excuse me, Arrests of Venezuelans plunged 91% to 4,422 from 46,920 in December. The January decline may prove tenuous. Still, it's welcome news for the White House as immigration has become one of the biggest issues in this year's presidential election. Exit polls show it is it is the top concern among many Republican voters in early primaries. New Orleans marks Fat Tuesday. The annual pre-Lenten celebration is the most well-known in the U.S. New Orleans, Mardi Gras. New Orleans bade a typically joyous goodbye to Carnival season Tuesday with Mardi Gras parades street parties, and what amounted to a massive outdoor costume festival around the bars and restaurants in the French Quarter. Revelers in capes, wigs, spandex, and feathers danced in front of St. Louis Cathedral and Jackson Square, where Latin music blared. Not far away, tourists and locals roamed bourbon and royal streets with costumes that varied from the scanty to and suggestive to the fanciful. Outside the narrow streets of the quarter, two tradition-rich parades rolled on a route that took them through the city's uptown neighborhood and onto Canal Street in the business district. First came the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, with marchers and riders in African-inspired garb handing out the century-old club signature gift, hand-decorated coconuts. Later, Rex, king of the carnival, rolled down St. Charles, stopping for a ceremonial toast at a historic downtown building with Mayor Latoya Cantrell. Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, is a secular holiday, but it's tied to Christian and Roman Catholic traditions. It always falls the day before Ash Wednesday and is seen as the final day of feasting and revelry before the solemnity of Lent. Monday night featured the parade of the uh, Treyway of Orpheus, co-founded by homegrown musician and actor Harry Connick Jr. In addition to elaborate floats and marching bands, participants included Connick himself, actor Neil Patrick Harris, and Harris's husband, David Burke. New Orleans has the nation's largest and best-known carnival celebration. It's replete with cherished traditions beloved by locals. It is also a vital boost to the city's tourist-driven economy, always evident in the French Quarter. The annual pre-Lenten festivities aren't limited to New Orleans. 
Similar celebrations are held in Louisiana and along the Gulf Coast, Mobile, Alabama, where six parades were scheduled Tuesday, lays claim to the nation's oldest Mardi Gras celebration. Other lavish carnival celebrations in Brazil and, and Europe are world-renowned. More global news. Israel-Hamas progress towards ceasefire deal. South Africa requests court to weigh if Rafa attacks breach orders. Cairo. Israel and Hamas are making progress toward another ceasefire and hostage relief deal. Officials said Tuesday as negotiations went on and Israel threatened to expand its offensive to Gaza's southern edge where some 1.4 million Palestinians have sought refuge. The talks continued in Egypt a day after Israeli forces rescued two captives in Rafah and packed southern, the, the packed southern town along the Egyptian border in a raid that killed at least 74 Palestinians, according to local health officials. Israel launched the war after thousands of Hamas-led militants rampaged through southern Israel on October 7th, killing 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and taking roughly 250 people captive. An estimated 100 people are still held captive in Gaza. Qatar and the United States and Egypt have sought to broker a deal. More than 28,000 people have been killed in the Gaza Strip. South, South Africa, which lodged genocide allegations against Israel, at the International Court of Justice said Tuesday it filed an urgent request with the court to consider whether Israel's military operations in Rafah constitute a breach of orders to take greater measures to spare civilians. And now a criminal justice. Will verdict reshape gun cases? What's next for the parents of school shooter in Michigan? A conviction in unprecedented trial of a Michigan school shooter's mother will stand as a milestone to law enforcers across the U.S. as well as a stark reminder to parents with guns in their home. But experts who follow Jennifer Crumley's involuntary manslaughter case note that events related to the Oxford High School attack were extraordinary and might not match other cases where parental blame could be weighed. I'm not a big believer that one, any one conviction creates some sort of landslide effect, said Detroit area lawyer Margaret Rabin, the former leader of a statewide association of defense attorneys. Prosecutors bring charges they think they can prove, she said. The facts are horrible. I don't know Jennifer Crumley, but it's fair to say a lot of people were alarmed at the way she was parenting this kid, or not parenting. What happened? <clears throat> the parents of Ethan Crumley were summoned to his school on November 30, 2021, to discuss the 15-year-old's violent drawings on a math assignment with desperate phrases. The thoughts won't stop. Help me, my life is useless. The school's concern was that he might be suicidal, not that he was threatening 
a threat to others. His parents declined to take him home and instead said they would look at a list of mental health services. A few hours later, Ethan Crumley pulled a Sig Sauer 9mm handgun from his backpack and began firing. No one had checked the bag. He shot 11 people, killing four students. The shooter, now 17, pleaded guilty and is serving a life sentence. Parents pursued. A jury in Oakland County, Michigan, convicted Jennifer Crumbly, 45, of involuntary manslaughter last week. Prosecutors argued that she was grossly negligent in not securing the gun and had a legal duty to prevent her son from harming others, even if she didn't know his specific plan. James Crumbly took him to a gun shop four days before the attack and bought the Sig Sauer, which the teen called his beauty. Jennifer Crumley took him to a gun range that same weekend, buying 100 rounds of ammunition. Those facts were not shared with school officials during the meeting on the day of the shooting, according to the trial testimony. Jennifer Crumley told jurors it was irrelevant. She said she saw no signs of mental distress and pinned responsibility for gun storage on her husband. The jury forewoman said Jennifer Crumley wasn't a super reliable witness. She told NBC's Today Show that some jurors were influenced by Ethan Crumbly's journal in which he lamented his parents' lack of interest in his mental health. Reaction to the verdict. Oakland County Sheriff Mike Bouchard, whose office investigated the parents, said the jury plowed new ground with this verdict. Every town for gun safety, a national advocacy group that works on policies to reduce gun violence, said the verdict shows that the Oxford shooting could have been prevented, especially with proper gun storage. The charges in this case were remarkable. The number of signs missed and decisions made were just too hard to ignore, said Nick Suplina, Senior Vice President for Law and Policy. Lawyers in the case have declined to comment, citing a gag order imposed by Judge Cheryl Matthews. In Illinois, in a different case of parental responsibility, Robert Crimo Jr. last year pleaded guilty to misdemeanors for sponsoring his 19-year-old son's gun license. He was accused of knowing about Robert Crimo III's suicidal thoughts and threats against others. The son is charged with killing seven people at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park in 2022. The Sentence The maximum penalty for involuntary manslaughter is 15 years in prison. Matthew's job on April 9th will be to set the minimum term to be served before Jennifer Crumbly is eligible for parole. The minimum could be as high as 10 years, Rabin said, adding that the sentences on four convictions would likely be served at the same time and not stacked. As she considers the sentence, the judge undoubtedly will think about Jennifer Crumbly's testimony in which she expressed no regrets 
about how she dealt with her son in the school on the day of the shooting. We did lose a lot, she said, summing up this tragedy. The message that sent to parents, the victims, the jurors was incredible, said Richard Convertino, a former federal prosecutor who watched the seven-day trial. I think it was a misstep after misstep by the defense. He noted that defense attorney Shannon Smith began her opening statement to jurors with an odd reference to a Taylor Swift song about band-aids and bullet holes. In her closing argument, Smith took the unusual tack of referring to her own family to try to deflect an unflattering portrayal of Jen- Jennifer Crumley. It does not mean she loved her son any less if she ever told a witness. My son is weird, Smith said. I have sent texts to my husband saying, our daughter is a psycho today. On the way to school last week, she's crying. She doesn't have people to sit with at lunch. I texted him. She's a nutcase. Smith wondered if she would be responsible if her teen son sent a nude picture of his bits and pieces to a girl on a phone that she owns. Comvoturta said Jennifer Crumbly's trial defense was a losing proposition from the start and went down from there. Father's trial. James Crumbly, 47, faces his own involuntary manslaughter trial March 5th. He too will be confronted with evidence that he didn't do enough to help his son before the shooting. Jurors will see images of him and Ethan buying the gun. Prosecutors also have a crucial piece of evidence, a call to 911 that implies he quickly figured his son could be the shooter at Oxford High. I raced home just to, like, find out, and I think my son took the gun. I don't know if it's him. I don't know what's going on. I am really freaking out. My son's name is Ethan Crumley, he said on that call. You are listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I am your reader, Martha Avery. If you have any comments on this or any IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6888. And now I will return to reading the paper. Before I turn to sports, let's take a look at the weather. Today is partly sunny and mild with wind southeast 6 to 12 miles per hour with a high of 50 degrees. Tonight will be a 22 breezy, a little snow early, wind north 10 to 20 miles per hour. On Thursday, you can expect a high of 37 and a low of 23. It's going to be colder, snow at night, 1 to 2 inches, and the wind north, 7 to 14 miles per hour. Friday is becoming windier and colder. Saturday looks like sunshine and not quite as cold. And Sunday is going to be mild with with sun. Everyone's talking about Caitlin Clark, and so are we, debating greatness. 
Iowa's Caitlin Clark is about to capture the NCAA women's scoring record, but does she need a national title to be considered among the best ever? Women's College Basketball Iowa's Caitlin Clark will soon be the NCAA's all-time scoring leader in women's basketball. That, in many minds, is enough to put the 22-year-old Iowa star among the greats of college basketball. But even after passing Kelsey Plum atop the NCAA's women's list and perhaps Pete Maravich on the men's side, does Clark need a national title to stand alongside the likes of Cheryl Miller, Diana Tarasi, Maya Moore, and Shamanique Holtzclaw? I do think she'll be up there, South Carolina coach Don Stately said. I do, Staley. Clark, who's averaging 32.1 points this season, has 3,520 career points and needs eight more to pass Plum's record of 3,527 for Washington from 2013 to 2017. The milestone is all but certain to happen Thursday night when Clark and the Hawkeyes host Michigan. Clark also could pass Detroit's Mercy's Antoine Davis, 3,664 points, and perhaps Marovich, who put up 3,667, that's plus three, points for LSU in the three seasons from 1967 to 1970. Staley was National Player of the Year while helping Virginia to three Final Fours from 1989 to 92, but she finished her college career without a title, something she believes should not take away from what Clark has accomplished. The 22-year-old Clark excels in an era when women's game is bursting with growth and new fans in the arenas and on TV, Staley said. Even the ones who are just starting to see her will be talking about her greatness, Staley said. And that's something some of the other greats didn't have. Pearl Moore, like Staley, a member of the Nysmith Hall of Fame, remembers too well how few people paid attention to the women's game when she played at Francis Marion in the late 1970s and became the most prolific women's scorer in history. No matter where Clark finishes this season, she's unlikely to catch Moore's mark of 4,061 points from 1975 to 79. Moore's total is not recognized in the NCAA scoring list because she played in the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. No matter, she said, Clark has brought the game to a bigger stage. It's great to see so many people paying attention, Moore said. Former Notre Dame coach Muffet McGraw, who won two NCAA titles in 2001 and 2018 with the Fighting Irish, believes Clark has established her spot, whether she and the Hawkeyes win the national tournament or not. The lines of fans, young and old, can be both a joy for Clark to draw from 
or an added level of pressure for her to live up to. The greats McGraw thinks have that will to succeed within them, no matter if there are millions, thousands, or dozens watching. She has definitely met the moment, McGraw said. Clark has seemingly kept a rational perspective publicly about chasing a championship. Iowa reached the title game a year ago by beating Staley's undefeated number one Gamecocks 77-73, but they were beaten soundly for the championship by LSU 102-85. Afterwards, a visibly upset Clark said she wanted her legacy to be on her young fans and the people of Iowa. I was that young girl, she said. All you have to do is dream and you can be in moments like this. And here from the NFL notes. Chiefs read already talking preparation for next city season. Kansas City, Missouri. Chiefs coach Andy Reid is giving the rest of his staff about a week off after their Super Bowl victory parade through downtown Kansas City on Wednesday. Then he expects everyone to be back in the building to begin working on next season. So much for downtime. The Chiefs have a three-peat to think about. Reid spoke to a small group of reporters Tuesday two days after the Chiefs beat the San Francisco 49ers 25-22 in overtime in Las Vegas for their second straight championships. To win one is tough. To win two back-to-back is really tough, Reed said. That's not an easy thing to do, and to know the effort the guys put into it, the way they stuck together through highs and lows, that's gratifying as a head coach. After the Chiefs wind their way through Union Station, where hundreds of thousands of fans are expected to greet them again, the players will get a break off until off-season conditioning begins. But the coaching staff, scouts, and the rest of the general manager and the and the rest of general manager Brett Beach's staff will get right back to work. The period in which teams can use the franchise tag begins next Tuesday, but the key date is February 27th, when the NFL begins its week-long scouting combine in Indianapolis. The second week of March brings the start of free agency. The annual league meeting is held near the end of the month in Orlando, Florida, and then teams will put the final touches on their plan for the NFL draft, which is April 25th through 27th in Detroit. Now for a little humor. Driving course and automotive. My wife thinks I drive too fast. Our younger daughter thinks I drive too slow. Since I am neither a white-knuckled NASCAR wannabe nor a little old man who toodles along in the passing lane with his left blinker on, this means I drive just right. I recently proved it by getting an A in the ARP, A-A-R-P, Smart Driver Course. I took the six-hour online course for one of the following reasons. A, to prove my 
to prove my wife and daughter wrong, B, to be a safe driver, C, to get a discount on my auto insurance. If you guessed C, you would be correct, although the first two were factors as well. I was correct on 94% of the test questions in the course, which fortunately did not require me to get behind the wheel of a used sedan with a driver's ed instructor who would probably go into cardiac arrest if he knew I flunked the same road test my older daughter, then 16, passed with flying colors. But that was an anomaly which sounds like a foreign car because I have gotten only two tickets and had just one accident, the other guy's fault, in more than five decades of driving. Still, I thought it was a good idea as an older driver, in quotes, to take a refresher course. This allowed me to sit at my computer and proceed at a leisurely pace, which would have infuriated the driver behind me if I'd been in an actual car. It's also allowed me to do things I'm not supposed to do while driving, eat, drink, and talk on the phone, but which I see plenty of other drivers do, usually while cutting me off and giving me one-digit salute if I honk my horn at them. This is the kind of dangerous stuff that Joe and Maria, the hosts of the ARP Smart Driver course, warn against. And they go to great lengths to emphasize the right and wrong ways to operate a motor vehicle. They also review such basics as wearing a seatbelt, adjusting the mirrors, and inspecting the tires. Check your fluids, they add. I think it's a good idea to check your car fluids too. But Joe and Maria, who do voiceovers while their photos appear on the screen, aren't the only people participating in the course. Real-life seniors, including a married couple who argue while trying to figure out a map, appear in several videos. One guy says, The last thing I want to do is be a burden to my family, so I'm going to keep driving for as long as I can. It's a good thing I'm not in the video, because I would have said that being a burden is my goal, and if you ask my family, I achieved it a long ago. That's why I'm still driving. I must say, however, that I got a lot out of the course. Yes, there's plenty of stuff I already knew. But it doesn't hurt to be reminded about such important things as how to depress the brake. My guests insulted. People change as they get older. I changed my socks last week. And not everyone is at the same skill level when it comes to operating a motor vehicle. Some people shouldn't be driving at all, especially the idiots who routinely blow through the stop signs in front of my house. That's why I'm glad I paid attention through all six hours of the course. Helped me get 117 out of 125 questions, right? That's a score of 94. In other words, I aced it, and I graduated with a certificate, motor cum laude. <laughs> this will impress my wife and daughter, they're the best backseat drivers I know. That's by Jerry Zazima. He writes a humor column for the Tribune News Service. And so let's look at Valentine's Day, a by-the-numbers look at the year's most romantic holiday, sweet celebration. So how much will be spent? How much on average will be spent? A total of $185.81. This is broken down by saying that 
a hundred and one dollars and eighty four cents is spent um, on a significant other or spouse. Then other family members, children, parents, etc., another twenty nine dollars and eight cents. Children's classmates, teachers, twelve dollars and two cents, and co-workers nine dollars and thirteen cents. And guess what? Pets get eleven dollars and nine cents. So then they have a map of the United States, and they have America's room romantic places, some places in the United States with names suitable for celebrating Valentine's Day. There is not one in Iowa. There is a Love, Illinois. There's a Love Lake, Minnesota. There's a Darling Lake, North Dakota, and a Valentine, Nebraska, among others. Now, how do people plan on their purchases? So in the United States this year, they estimate that $25.8 billion will be spent to celebrate Valentine's Day. Candy, the planned purchases are candy, 57%, greeting cards, 40%, flowers, 39%, and evening out, 32%, jewelry, 22%, Clothing, 21%, and a gift card or gift certificate at 19%. Now, flowers, a rose by any color. Shakespeare's Juliet said a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But what about its color? Here's what you are really saying with the roses you send this Valentine's Day. A red rose, I love you, respect, courage. A white rose, Silent, humility, innocence, and purity. A yellow rose, friendship, good cheer. Pink rose, happiness, grace, gentility. And an orange rose, enthusiasm and desire. Well, so as we're talking about spending, the yearly inflation cools but remains elevated from Washington. Consumer inflation in the United States cooled last month, yet last month yet remained elevated. The Labor Department's report Tuesday showed the consumer price index rose 0.3% from December to January, up from 2% increase the previous month. Compared with a year ago, prices are up 3.1%. That is less than the 3.4 figure in December and far below the 9.1% inflation peak in 2022, but still well above the Federal Reserve's 2% target level. As public frustration with inflation is a pivotal issue for President Joe Biden's bid for re-election, excluding volatile food and energy costs, so-called core prices climbed 0.4% last month, up from 0.3% in December. Year over year, core prices were up 3.9% in January, the same as in December. Police, this is the statue. 
Police in Wichita, Kansas announced Tuesday a man's arrest in the theft of the Jackie Robinson statue found dismantled and burned, saying there was no evidence it was a hate-motivated crime, but the intent was to sell the metal for scrap. More arrests were expected. So on this day of chocolates, we're reading an article called Chocolate May Have Benefits in Moderation. Historians credit Richard Cadbury, son of chocolatier John Cadbury, with the invention in 1861 of heart-shaped boxes filled with chocolates. The box, after the candy was consumed, was intended to store sentimental love letters or locks of hair, which were common practices in the Victorian age. Of course... Chocolate has been around much longer than the heart-shaped boxes for Valentine's Day. When first domesticated over 5,000 years ago in present-day Ecuador, cocoa beans were used to prepare a bitter-tasting beverage that was thought to give strength and sexual, sexual proudness to the drinker, according to Wikipedia. In fact, the Latin name for the tree that produces cocoa beans is Theobroma cacao, which means food of gods. Time went on, and in 16th century Europe, someone added sugar to chocolate, so here we are. Contrary to popular opinion, chocolate is not an essential food group. It was, however, reported to be a vital part of the rations for U.S. soldiers during the wars of the previous century. And when it comes to nutrition, there is some good news for those of us who adore this beloved treat. Cocoa beans, from which chocolate is made, are rich in substances called polyphenols. Among other benefits, these antioxidant compounds have been shown in human studies to improve the flow of blood through arteries and assist in keeping blood pressure under control. In general, more polyphenols reside in cocoa powder and baking chocolate, followed by dark chocolate, semi-sweet, and milk chocolate. And get this, chocolate has been identified as a polyphenol-rich food, along with tea and wine. And while I wouldn't necessarily recommend we eat chocolate for its nutrient content, it does contain a fair amount of essential minerals, including magnesium, iron, and zinc. Chocolate varies in fat content, check the label, but more than half the fat in products high in cocoa is in the form of a healthful monounsaturated fats and steric acid, a good guy, saturated fat, that may actually be good for our hearts, according to the USDA Food Data Central. While scientists continue their grueling study of chocolate's attributes, several analysts of this most loved food analysis, excuse me, several analysis of this most loved food suggests that eaten in moderation, chocolate may actually bestow some benefits to your health, according to 2021 review published in the journal Nutrients. How much is moderate? In 2021, researchers reporting in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology calculated the association between chocolate consumption and the, the risk 
for heart disease to be more than 300,000 people from six prospective studies. Their final tally was that the benefits of nutrients in chocolate appeared promising and chocolate consumption at least once a week may be beneficial for the prevention of coronary artery disease. So this week in history, memory lane, February 13th, 2022, there, it's football. Cooper Cup catches the winning one-yard touchdown to send the Los Angeles Rams past the Cincinnati Bengals 23-20 in the Super Bowl um, 51. Uh, February 13, 1923, the New York Renaissance, the first all-black pro basketball team, is organized. The Rens become one of the dominant basketball teams of the 20 and 1920s and 1930s. In 1937, the NFL Redskins moved from Boston to Washington. In 1948, Dick Button, the Olympic gold medalist, beats Hans Gerschweiler again to win the Men's World Figure Skating Championship in Davos, Switzerland. 1954, Furman's Frank Selby scores 100 points in the 140. In a 149 to 95 victory over Newberry, Selvey breaks the record of 73 points sent by Temple's Bill Mil Milvey in 1941 and 41 field goals and 18 free throws. 1975, Boston's Bobby Orr gets an assistant to the Bruins' three to one loss to the Buffalo Sabers to become the first player in NHL history to reach 100 points in six consecutive seasons. It's the final 100-point season of his career. 1995, Connecticut is voted number one in the Associated Press Top 25 and joins the school women's team in the top. It is the first time teams from one school were ranked number one in the men's and women's college basketball polls. February 14th, in 1953, Bill Chambers of William and Mary grabs 51 rebounds in a 104-84 victory over Virginia. In 1986, Wayne Gretzky gets seven assists for the third time in his career as the Edmonton Oilers beat the Quebec Nordics 8-2. In 1988, Bobby Allison outduels his 26-year-old son, Davey, with, to win the Daytona 500 and become the first 50-year-old to win the NASCAR's premier event. This goes on for quite some time here. So let's just go to um, something more recent. And that is in 2005, on February 16th. The 2004-05 NHL season is canceled 
by Commissioner Gary Bettman due to a labor dispute, marking the first time in North American professional sports has called the season off due to such a dispute. I regret I don't have time to read all of that history, but because we have come to the end of today's reading of the Sioux City Journal, I am your reader, Martha Avery. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.